Hello there, I'm Christopher Lee, Mary's in the Hut, and you, you are welcome at this week's Sipret Round Table in a warm and breezy afternoon in London town. Well, in the next 60 minutes, Afghanistan, why the MOD thinks we have to be told why we're there. Drone warfare, does it do what the brochure says it does? Is the proposed MOD green paper a con? Steel cutting started for the carriers, does that mean they're safe? Why we should all take note of what was said in Moscow this week, and if the two presidents don't. Arms control, all a myth, or an invention of the weapons trade? Why Met's counter-terrorism budget can't escape cuts? The Pope and the United Nations, and and why Gordon Brown doesn't highly rate the Defence Secretary, your Defence Secretary. Uh, with me at the Sitrep Round Table, which, for those who have asked, really is round or sort of. With me at the Sitrep Round Table this week, the BBC's Defence and Security Correspondent, Rob Watson, the Limehouse Group's Middle East Analyst, Hajir Tamorin, and the former Kremlin Foreign Policy Advisor, Alexander Nekrasov. Um, Rob, Rob Watson. Um, Bob Ainsworth, the Defence Secretary, uh, who probably is actually quite highly rated by the Prime Minister. Um, Bob Ainsworth, in what's billed as his first speech since his appointment in last month, wasn't it? Yeah, that's true. right. Yeah. Um, Relatively long serving. Yeah, yes. I mean, thank goodness not a transport minister, otherwise, be out next week. Um, he, he was supposed to have reaffirmed this week the United Kingdom's commitment to operations in Afghanistan. Um, I just thought he was churning out what had already been said years ago, months ago. Absolutely. I don't think there's any any doubt that this was a restatement of existing British policy, not some form of departure. I, I don't think there's any crime in that. I think that the government clearly felt that if you had, in the light of the, of the recent upsurge in casualties in Afghanistan, they were obliged to, in some ways, reassure the public. This is what we're doing in Afghanistan. This is why we're there. And this is how long it'll take. Well, actually, he didn't answer that question. He said there is no defined end date. But I think, in other words, it was a restatement, not a reformulation, no departures, nothing new. It was just a, look, this is why we're here. This is what we're doing. And we need to say this because of what's happened in the last few weeks. I did, um, there was one phrase in it. He said, if we are to succeed... If, if we are to succeed, it's not very positive, is it? Well, in some ways, I think that represents a new mood in the government about Afghanistan. I think you would not have had an if several years ago, but I think it would be foolish to say that there wasn't something of a sense of, perhaps the word is gloom about the mission in Afghanistan. Gloom, not that it won't perhaps turn out right in the end, but that it clearly isn't easy. And, you know, you have to remember that when the British first went down to, to southern Afghanistan in 2006, John Reid said, I was there, he didn't say, we're going to do it without a shot being fired. That's not an accurate uh, depiction of what he said. But he did express at least the hope that uh, this would go off without, um, without too much violence. That clearly hasn't happened. It's clearly, there clearly is a, a, a kind of a mood of grim determination, and I think some gloom about the mission too. Right, Hajir Tamorian. Christopher, can I make a confession... I think it's fair to our yes, audience. My son. <laughs> he's an atheist and he's making confessions. <laughs> Come on. Um, when um, Britain went into Afghanistan, you may have forgotten, I said I was quite optimistic that the Taliban, being a tribal militia, would quickly lose, lose um, uh, morale faced by Western armies. But I'm afraid Western armies have made huge mistakes ever since then. But on top of that, possibly the main reason why we have not succeeded has been that 
um, the process of nation building in Afghanistan has proved more difficult than we expected. This nation, of course, has never been a nation. Many tribes, many people, Persian speakers, Turkish speakers, Uzbeks, etc., Hazaras, Mongols, Pashtuns in the south, have never been a nation. Now, I was optimistic that such had been the suffering of the bulk of the Afghan people under the Taliban that they would cooperate in defeating it. But either they haven't been incapable of the dis discipline or still they have not united in order to help Western armies to train them well enough. Alexander Nekrasov, you... you well, I think the big mistake was Hamid Karzai. You cannot have a, a weak leader. He's our boy, isn't he? Yeah, he and Americans have, have connect, you know, linked uh, themselves with him and they can't seem to get rid of him because you have to really have a tough guy there in Kabul. You cannot have that weakling who is suspected of drug dealing and so on. You have to is have he a really... suspected or is well, that his, brother, his brother? His brother, yes, but you know, rumors spread and so on and so on. And, Are you and, spreading one? Well, no, I'm, 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 I'm saying that the point is that he's seen as an American puppet. He's seen as, as, as a man who has no sort of strong leadership. His influence basically ends outside his office. And this is very important because in those tribal countries, you really need to have strong leaders, tough leaders. I mean, in Iraq, okay, he's also not very strong, but at least he's got this image of a tough man. Well, you know? and, and you seem to have the, you know, it's like the, the worst. It's the worst of all things all round because... You're absolutely right that uh, Hamid Karzai is, is not regarded by the West as a, a strong leader, but on the other hand, he is seen by the Afghans as a puppet of the United States. The United States has, has hugely cooled on him, but has now come to the realisation that it's actually got a really poor record of choosing other countries' presidents. Iraq is included. But, uh, Tommy, hang on, hang on. What, ha no, wait a minute. Uh, what happens then if the Afghan people, in one way or another, select him next month when it comes to the presidential election? Well, I think that's one of the reasons why the United States and its allies haven't come out against him, because they think that is a, a perfect possibility. If you actually look at the, the latest opinion polls, such as the opinion polls are in Afghanistan, they, they seem to suggest that all the other likely runners and riders aren't, aren't going to get anywhere. And, and most of the other people running against him are, are pretty much entirely unknown. So he, you know, he, in, he's uh, likely in, could win by default as that of name recognition. Unknown in Afghanistan. Karzai's background is right. The Pashtuns believe that they own Afghanistan, and they, he comes from... By a, and large, they do, don't they? they? Well, they have until now, by, by force of hmm. uh, arms. But um, he is a Pashtun. It would have been terrible um, to have chosen a Tajik or a Hazara or, or a Persian speaker, etc. So he comes from that area, uh, the Pashtuns, and he's also a tribal chief. I think they began well, but... The process, the difficulties of building a nation around him has proven more difficult than we expected. There's another problem, of course, mm. the drugs. Now, when they went in, the idea was they would destroy the drugs. I then suggested on BBC Roundtable that they should buy them from them, the farmers, the drugs. Because, because the idea was that if you go in and smash the drug trade and, and, what you do with and destroy the poppies, what do you do with the farmers? They'll become immediately mm. rebels, insurgents and so on. So I said, look, why don't you buy them? I was discussing it with some Clinton or somebody, former Clinton advisor. She went berserk for some reason, but uh, I think it's not a bad idea. Well, it's because what the British did in the 1840s. Yeah, but why not buy them now? Because mm. the point is you can't really destroy the crops, right? Because you mm. can't really say to them, okay, guys, you, you, you grow flowers. It, it doesn't work like this. They had a stable they income. They do grow flowers. 
Well, yes, but I mean, I mean yes, I mean, in the flower, <laughs> tulips. <laughs> yeah. So uh, the idea was that, and I think that was messed up because the soldiers didn't really understand what to okay. do. Okay. Um, um, Rob, let's get, come back from the theoretical to the more practical. Um, uh, today, in the Daily Telegraph, we have the Liberal Democrat leader, uh, Nick Clegg, saying that government or politicians have let down the services. Um, again, I, it, it, a lot of what he's saying is, yeah, we all know that. That's the, that's the gen- those are the headlines. Where's the solution if you're going to pronounce like that? Well, I couldn't see one. I, I don't think that this is a, a radical departure from what's been said already, despite uh, perhaps some of the BBC's own headlines about this issue. It, it really isn't. I mean, it strikes me that a, a departure, a radical mm. political departure in this country would be someone saying, well, there have been problems with equipment, there have been problems with strategy, but actually the real problem is that Afghanistan is not somewhere we should, we should be, so we should all get out. And, and one of the extraordinary things about this whole campaign in Afghanistan, if you think about it, is the extraordinary extent to which there has been political unity. There is no major party in Britain saying that we should withdraw. All the parties have been saying different variants or critics within the governing party have been... It's very, it's, it's, you know, on the same theme, which is we haven't given the troops the right equipment, we haven't given them the right mission. If we really cared about it, we would be sending more troops. But it's not a radical departure. I mean, he's not saying Afghanistan is a waste of time. He's saying we've got the wrong strategy. Yeah. Well, plenty of people it's have been saying that. Interesting, General Cordingly, Patrick Cord- Cordingly was saying, if I got him right, um, perhaps we ought to come out and say to NATO, look, you have to go and do a bit of our job, and we'll be back in five years and sort of have, I can't remember the military term, there is one for, you know, sort of having a, a sort of time out for uh, four or five years. And it's interesting, of course, that, that usually the, the public prints and the, uh, and the media rely on uh, the Patrick Corningleys of this world by saying, well, you know, Desert Rats did the first Gulf War, etc. How up-to-date um, one can be in saying this sort of thing still doesn't get us any further. No. I mean, if your point is about the, um, you know, the, the certain amount of armchair critiquing going on, I'm always somewhat staggered that people could be... We, we four accepted <laughs> But I'm almost staggered about how anyone could be super certain one way or another. I mean, those, those commentators, and we know who they are, who say there's not, a, there's not a cat in hell's chance that anything could possibly work in Afghanistan. I don't quite see how they could be quite so sure about that. And, and those military leaders who say, look, if, if we just do things the right way, if we kind of brush up our counterinsurgency strategy, if we have successful elections, then there's a chance that things might work. I'm, I'm also curious as to how they could be quite so confident. We've we left Pakistan out of it, of course. Pakistan. And we get to the real problem. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, Pakistan is the solution to the whole thing. I mean, that's mm. what everybody's been t- saying now for 12 months. Tell me, um, there's something else about this that puzzles me, um, Alexander. Uh, the drone warfare. Um, I mean, this week, I can't think, was it 50-something or other people killed in three separate drone American, in fact, CIA drone attacks uh, south of Waziristan. Do we actually know whether these things are as good as we think they are? Well, they have this value? Well, first of all, it's trigger-happy, you know, typical Americans. They don't really, you know, see where they're, where they're shooting and they don't really care. And uh, the Americans, when they start losing, 
the the battle they will use anything in vietnam they started using chemical weapons napalm and so yeah. on i have to so, i have to break in here and say that general <laughs> mccrystal who is the, new, uh, the relatively new commander in uh, afghanistan is saying actually that is the problem we must care we must restrict uh, the number of uh, possibilities of getting civilians but you know drones they've been tested in russia and uh, they are actually very very you you can get, hit the target uh, and and they allowed to avoid uh, casualties, civilian casualties. I don't really understand what they're doing. I mean, is it just sort of trying to terrorize everybody, or why are they missing all the time? I don't really understand. Well, not, I don't think. I think in the last few months that their targeting has has been much tighter. Well, much tighter. well, well, the latest example is that it's not. Uh, they just well, whacked a no, lot of people but, but, again. But in but in in general, I think the evidence suggests that they have been much more accurate, there, there and is, I suspect that that's because despite the, the public denials that the Pakistanis are telling them where to fire these things. Now, there's a, another problem with Pakistan. Everybody seems to say, well, if only Pakistani army would close the borders, everything will happen. No army in the world can close the border between Afghanistan and Pakistan. It's impossible. Mm. There are, you know, those tribal routes, they use them. It's impossible. So for people to say it's because of, Afga of, of Pakistan that we are losing, it's rubbish. No, Pakistan has been acting as a safe haven. The Taliban go in there, breathe, rest, re-equip, and But there's back. nothing you can do about it, you well, see, because if, if the government goes against them, the government will fall the in Pakistan. The government That's as is, as that. is now going against them for the first time well, gently, in all gently. these years. Yes, South Waziristan is now on fire, really. And Well, after uh, the Swat Valley, um, that was just the warm-up, wasn't it? The warm-up yeah, act. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the big... No, I, I, pushes I, to come. I think, I think the Swat Valley is, is, is very significant. It was explained to me by... Uh, one official very very privately that it would be a bit like in Britain if you um, I don't know if the if extremists took over Brighton you know all the middle they classes have. everybody they have. Have, <laughs> they have of course <laughs> everyone would be very very cross and it's been like that with the Swat Valley you know it's not like that the tribal areas if someone took yeah. some remote island north of Scotland you know the middle classes in London might sort of brush it off a little bit but the Swat Valley it's 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 a step too far and you've got all of these posh Pakistanis who took their holidays there plus lots of other Pakistanis plus the army and I think that really has changed things along with the you know the famous mobile phone footage of the yeah. of the young girl getting flogged South Waziristan though I think is a quite different proposition Altogether, I think there are an awful lot of Pakistanis who say, oh, well, all the people that live there are crazy anyway, let's, let's just leave them to it. And the, the Pakistani army doesn't have many friends in South Waziristan. I mean, you're always looking for, for, an, for an ally, some of the local people. There aren't many friends that the Pakistani army has in South or North Waziristan. Yes. Hashi, tell me, um, and then we're going to move on, uh, something entirely different, but um, I wonder if... There is a consensus now of the support that the uh, Pakistan government has from A, people in Pakistan and what mm. it's doing, mm. and B, whether the people like the United Kingdom, the United States, are actually saying and applying pressure to the Pakistan government, saying, look, we will put in money, we will give you shed loads of money. Um, I mean, the, the Foreign Secretary, uh, David Millenband's there, promising all sorts of grants at the moment. Is that why they're doing it? Well, of course, they have been hoping for huge pots of Western money all along. There's now more of it coming. But I think I would have said the bulk of the Pakistani people, particularly since the assassination of Bin Azir Bhutto, whom they were almost certainly going to elect as their next prime minister, by, about 18 months by, ago by the Taliban, 
and of course her husband is now president um, and uh, so the, there is public backing but does it matter really if the army sometimes acts as its own agent well, I think there's a couple, couple of other points I, I do think that the um, Pakistani some Pakistani officials I've spoken to are pulling their hair out about what they see as the missed opportunity to help Pakistan you got over two million people have been displaced by the fighting in, mm. in Swatin in the northwest frontier province, and just about the only country that's actually given them any money is the United States. I mean, some of the Pakistanis I speak to, they're, they're just in a state of despair. They've had absolutely no money, not one cent, from a single Muslim country. They haven't received any support from any European country of any size, despite all the, the various flapping about in the West about what a good job we think the Pakistanis are doing. So that's one side of it, the immediate problem. And then in the longer term, Pakistani diplomats will, will freely confess that what Pakistan lacks is the ability to, to follow up the military offensive in SWAT with something that might look like a, a sort of sensible, clean, workable government. Right. Now, I want to change to something else. Um, it's the, it was the promise... Uh, that was made this week of a green paper on defence to be the taster for a complete defence review after the next election, whoever is in government, presumably. The the announcement came at the start of this week and Jamie Gordon of BFPS listened. Tuesday's written statement was more of a declaration of intent. It promised a green paper early in the new year, setting out initial thoughts, followed by a full strategic defence review after the next election. It's the first SDR in 10 years and the first comprehensive review of policy since the 2003 White Paper. Bill Rammel is the Armed Forces Minister. It's going to be looking at the strategic context for defence. It's going to be looking at what lessons we can learn from Iraq and Afghanistan, the changing nature of conflict. It's not just about winning battles. It's actually about ensuring, yes, there's a military element, but we then need an aid component. It's going to look at our technological needs in terms of equipment. As yet, there's no indication that the initial review will seek to cut the £36 billion defence budget. But Professor Malcolm Chalmers of the Royal United Services Institute says any re-evaluation of defence policy will look for savings. A defence review will have to look at all sorts of options for how to make savings. It will look at major projects, it will look at levels of pay, it might look at operations and how much we can afford in Afghanistan. According to the written statement, ensuring the armed forces are sufficiently equipped and supported remains the government's priority. And spending over and above the MOD budget in the last financial year stood at £2.6 billion. But defence analyst Francis Tusa believes that any review, no matter how it's couched, means cuts. They are saying it will be policy-based, it will start from the bottom up, it will look at what we require from foreign policy. I don't believe any of those, quite frankly, are really going to cut the mustard. At the end of the day, this is a shorthand for, we've decided we're going to cut, we're now going to decide what it will look like afterwards and pretend it's rational. NESDR will look again at the Trident programme. Last week, the Institute for Public Policy Research said Britain can't afford much of the defence equipment it plans to buy, and urged the government to look at alternatives to the UK's nuclear deterrent. However, there is a commitment to the programme, and that view is broadly supported by the Conservatives. The Shadow Defence Secretary is Liam Fox. We know that other countries in the world are trying to develop nuclear weapons. North Korea has already done so and tested, and I think those who want one-sided disarmament are as wrong now as they were in the 1980s. We face the threat in the future of rogue states 
having nuclear weapons. Air Chief Marshal Sir Jock Stirrup, Chief of the Defence Staff, has backed the review and says it's right to address the challenges facing defence in the future. In a week that's seen multiple British fatalities in Afghanistan, the first steps in building two new controversial aircraft carriers and all that against the backdrop of a global financial crisis, the announcement of the first steps towards a strategic defence review seemed timely. Jamie Gordon, thank you very much indeed. Um, I suppose, I suppose, um, Rob Watson, we ought to be thankful at least somebody has moved on. But one gets the impression that uh, Green Paper, well, a Green Paper's a consultative document, isn't it? Yeah, I think this is the classic case of kicking the ball firmly into touch, <laughs> isn't it? I mean, yeah. n- nobody gets to make a tough decision until after the general election. And I suppose you could say, look, that's fair enough. There's not that much time between now and a general election. But it gets the you heat know, off. Oh, it gets the heat off. There's no doubt this was a political holding operation. On the other hand, everyone I've, that I've spoken to says, OK, well, uh, you know, la- Labour is dodging the bullet. But on the other hand, it at least begins the, the process of getting out all the paperwork and, and looking at it. And plow- it's also it. true that if you wanted a defence review, you couldn't have it at the moment. It's not the, you know, it takes a heck of a long time to set up the whole uh, machinery for a proper strategic defence review. And some of the things that I, I looked at, for example, I whipped them very quick, the strate- uh, of, of what they're going to be doing, looking at. The strategic context for defence, including lessons we're supposed to have learned, uh, contribution defence can make to the projection of soft power, technological changes in defence, the scope for more effective processes in defence, the modern day requirements on, of, and aspirations of armed forces personnel. Um, I would have thought that any MOD, and I have to say any Chiefs of Staff corridor, would be doing that anyway. I must say, I had a similar thought, that if you're, if you're not wondering about these things, what on earth are you doing? Look, I, I think people wonder about these things all the time. There are lots of people beavering around in, in funny buildings with long corridors and, and green windows, but then I, I suppose that's rather different, the sort of formal process of actually sticking it down and saying, OK... This is what we want to do. This is how much money we've got, and this is where the axe falls. Uh, but uh, I have a Alexander. Question. I have a question to the government. They blown how much on RBS Bank? I mean, the, I've spoken to some ex uh, servicemen, officers, and they said to me they're furious. They've seen a trillion pounds being given to banks to save failed banks, and we're talking about you know cutting ten billion for for defence purposes. I I think the government has made a mistake here. A big mistake. They should have at least, having two wars at once, they should have at least had the decency to say, look, we are going to increase defence spending because they, we have two wars on our hands. Well, the best thing about having two wars is that the Treasury can't get at you so easily. Now, uh, yeah. Hajir. <laughs> of course, we know that the Ministry of Defence carried out a, an equipment review only seven months ago and they decided to postpone the uh, carriers as well as most of the... Uh, or future but they haven't postponed them, have they? I mean, they cut the first deal this week. I mean, That's they... true. But, uh, so, um, nevertheless, one problem on the carriers, apart from the strategic importance of them, which I will come to, is that, for example, £1 billion has already been spent on them. They are now cutting steel, as, as you say. And uh, I want to look at this in a broader brush as well. Is it right for Britain to cut down on... Fer- on the size of the British Armed Forces when that would leave America as the only Western country with any possibility of going into failed nations or 
problematic part of the world. Well, if well, you're running, that's, that's, why, you know, that's why this has been described as a sort of East of Suez moment, isn't it? That's that, right. uh, you yeah. either that would you be a disaster for the world because I think Britain only could exert influence on America, on Washington, if it were a real partner, not just a tiny little boy listen, such as the listen, Italians. Listen, a chum of, my, a chum of mine uh, who is h- running half the, um, the health service says, yeah, get it in the MOD, cut those bastards down to size and let's get some work done in the hospitals. But then he is a very diplomatic man. Now, also a diplomatic man on the line from Oxford, uh, Dr Andrew Dolman, the co-author of the Chatham House paper National Defence in the Age of Austerity, and one of the people at the RUSIS Tuesday Conference on Future Defence Spending. Um, can I just ask a very basic question? Why do you think we've had the announcement now, this, um, this so-called green paper? Well, thank you. I think what the government's doing is, is buying time and delaying the decisions, as one of the earlier speakers said, to after the general election. It's now it just doesn't want to deal with it at the moment, and it's just kicking the ball into touch. Uh, so green paper is, 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 is what it is. It's a discussion note. It doesn't do anything more than that. I and mean, the whole point is that there, there's a simple question, isn't it? If I were in government, I'd have to say, I have decided what foreign policy is. Therefore, I've decided what I think I want defence to do. Uh, can you do it? Government can do it. It's about government making decisions about what it wants UKPLC to do, how much it's prepared to put into defence or into health or into whatever area of government it wants to spend money on. Um, and it's about government making decisions. It's, but the things government doesn't like is... It's also about managing risk. In, if it decides to invest in some areas of defence and not other areas, it will have to take risks and acknowledge it takes risks on those things. Previous governments have tried to shy away from doing that, and this government is no different. I see. Also get an impression from all the statements, and listening, uh, as I was at, uh, to um, Bob Ainsworth, Secretary of State, um, saying, when, you know, this is why we're in Afghanistan... Um, it doesn't actually seem to know, i.e. government doesn't actually seem to know, what they want the armed forces to do for them. No, I mean, I think this is one of the reasons you've, we've had so many arguments that we've seen between the services, and it's about arguments about programmes, which is all about arguments about inputs, because actually government itself hasn't decided what it's wanting to achieve in terms of its foreign policy and its defence and security policies. Uh, what it wants is security and defence, but it doesn't want to pay for it. Um, and as government has avoided the decision, we have had lots of arguments about do we want carriers or a nuclear deterrent or whatever. They're just means to an end. Um, but what government hasn't decided is what that end is. And I think the reason it's avoiding the question is uh, it will come across very difficult questions given how much it's prepared to put into defence. Your, your paper, which I think you did with uh, Paul Cornish, um, National Defence in the Age of Austerity, I suppose one could also ask, given the time that it costs or given the time that you spend um, on defence, these are long-term projects mostly, um, how long is the age of austerity there for? So doesn't defence just sort of carry on as normal and ignores the economic uh, uh, trials of the world? It cannot fully ignore the economic trials. We might remember back to the 1957 Sands White Paper, which shifted a significant money from defence but more importantly, shifting people back from the armed forces into um, civilian occupations because that's what they needed for the workforce. Defence is important. You know, it, it's a primary role of government, but it has to be done within the context of what a state can afford. And we are seeing, as so many of the projections are, that government spending, what it, government will be able to spend, whichever party is in power, is going to be very much circumscribed. 
And the problem we have linked to that is what governments favour when the problems defence has. It's not a vote winner. Health and education are. Right. I mean, the Sands White Paper from memory, from memory which was the Tory White Paper, yes? That's correct. Um, uh, was actually coming up be- partly because uh, of the end of conscription. So you had to... Uh, do things with a, rather a lot of people. Um, well, that was one of the conclusions it drew. It was a, because there was virtually zero empl- employment, unemployment at the time and need to get people into the workforce it, and post sewers and then new technologies coming through. It very much re-examined what defence was, what government could afford defence to do, reduced the defence budget and made big decisions such as the end of national service. In, in, um, so, interestingly, we are now reached a point, the sort of point that Sands had reached, that the whole concept of defence um, and what we wanted it to do, we had to be very, very clear what we wanted out of our defence, and nothing changed for, what, ten years until Dennis Healy came along. Well, that's correct, and one of the things we, we need from this review is not only what deciding what we want to do, it's then carrying it out. One of the big problems we've seen in previous defence reviews, indeed you can see it with the IPPR paper, it's a, a big disconnect between what they argue for and then what they suggest how it's actually implemented. Andrew Dorman, thank you very much indeed. Now, listening to that in Washington, the senior national security correspondent of the Wall Street Journal, Peter Spiegel. Um, you are having the same debate, aren't you, in the United States? Very much so. I mean, this twin issue of economic and, and fiscal problems leading to defense budget uh, decisions is very much there, as is this issue of lessons learned from the current wars. Um, and the difference is, is the political dynamic, I think, is quite different. I mean, unlike labor, which has always seen health and education as much more of a, of a vote winner, defense still is a, is a big vote winner in the United States. And the, and the Democrats in particular have to be very careful about being perceived as soft on defense. Uh, the one thing the Obama administration has that Labor doesn't have is, is, is uh, Defense Secretary Robert Gates, a holdover from the Bush administration, who very much can go to Congress and go to the American public as a Republican and say, here's what I want in terms of cuts, here's how I want to ship investment away from so-called conventional weapons like the you know, F-22 fighter, uh, there's, a, there's a naval destroyer there, they're thinking about stopping uh, the Army's future combat system, ship money from that and move it towards lower-cost sort of, you know, counterinsurgency, irregular warfare uh, programs like more personnel for the armed services, uh, unmanned aerial vehicles, that kind of thing. So the political dynamic is quite, is quite different. Tell me something, Peter. Is, the, is, is America reviewing its whole strategic, um, I suppose, uh, policy, um, the, the, the global policy? And so therefore, unlike the United Kingdom, apparently at the moment, America's getting into a position to say, we know what we want to do, and we know what we want our military to do for us to make that work. I mean, the big difference is, is there is a congressionally mandated process that every four years, the, the Pentagon has to come up with what's called the Quadrennial Defense Review, which states exactly that. This is what our national security priorities are. Here's how we're going to match our capabilities against it. Uh, for a long time, it was, it was two major theater wars, uh, that has changed now, and, and what the, the, the talk in the Pentagon is, is, is Secretary Gates is really trying to revise this to focus much more on regular warfare. There is no such formal process, my understanding, is the MOD, at least when I was covering the MOD. Um, so this is, you know, it's a plus and a minus. I think the Pentagon doesn't like necessarily this process because it does constrain them to a certain extent. But you do get the political guidance to the military about what equipment they should be buying, uh, what their forces should be, should be arrayed as. Um, so it does give them firm planning uh, guidance as to 
where they should move forward and where they should invest. Peter Spiegel, Wall Street Journal. Thank you very much indeed. Um, you're listening to SIPREP. Um, I'm Christopher Lee. With me still, the BBC's Defence and Security Correspondent, Rob Watson, the Lame House Group's Middle East Analyst, Hashir Tamarin, and the former Kremlin Foreign Policy Advisor, Alexander Nekrasov. Um, Rob, your time as for the BBC in New York, Washington, um, were you impressed with the way that the Americans went about their whole uh, defence policy uh, system, this this idea, you know, that every every four years they have to actually turn around and say, look, this is what we want to do with it. I, I guess the short answer is yes. You, you can't help but be impressed by the way the Pentagon works, the way the United States military works. I mean, sometimes it's not pretty. I mean, the American government is about the most complicated, I was going to use the word, I might as well use it, sort of bitchy in a bit more of an intellectual way. There are so many, there are so many players in the American system. And, you know, they all leak to various people. They leak to, they leak to different newspapers. There's a, there's a kind of constant tug of war going on between the people that pull the strings in Washington. So you've got Congress, the White House, the State Department, the National Security Council, the Pentagon, those who are actually running the individual services in the United States Armed Forces. I mean, it, it's a fantastic process to watch. And if you think about the case of Iraq, I mean, in the end, they sort of get there. I mean, if you think about Iraq, where you had plenty of people at the Pentagon, some of the senior figures, the suits, it just sort of carrying on. But, it were, but there were people lower down in the ranks who said, hang on, if we don't do something different, if we don't think about this different, hey, guess what? We're going to lose. Mm. And, it had the, and the United States military has the ability to, to take on board people who are dissenting and, it's interesting and turn that, things around. That, that attempt to, to do something different, say, in, in, in Iraq... Uh, was largely or partly the work of uh, General McChrystal, who is now the commander in Afghanistan. Absolutely. Yeah. As a long-term, long-time observer of British politics, I would like to say what I expect to happen in practice. We know that the Green Paper will not be decided upon um, till the next election. No, the Green no. Paper will. The Green Paper is just consulted. Yeah, but the, re yeah, the results of it. No decisions will be made. No. By then, David Cameron will be Prime Minister. We all expect that. And I think he will still be... I mean, we all expect it. Well, you every, may expect oh, it. I don't expect yeah. it. I think... I think I know nothing. All political commentators expect the Conservatives to be elected. And I think even four years after. So what will David Cameron want to see in practice? First of all, there are jobs in defence. that It is politically advisable to um, protect all those jobs that are um, involved in the making of the typhoon Eurofighter, the future um, rapid effect system whatever it is, carrier, nobody knows whatever, what it is actually. the carriers, so secondly he'll want to, take, to be taken seriously by Washington as a player in the world, mm. to be consulted to have any in influence, so he'll probably increase defence budget, therefore there will not be such big needs for cutting equipment Music to Cameron's ears, isn't it? I it mean, is. that he's coming to power. I, do, I doubt it very much, by yeah. the way, yeah. up to today especially. <laughs> um, Alexander, let, let's look at this just for the moment from, from uh, the Russian point of view, because I'm hearing what the Americans are going through the same process. Russia going through the same process. I mean, that speech from, was it from, from President uh, Medvedev uh, recently um, saying that that Russia's going to be a bigger player in everything military. He was speaking to the chiefs of staff at the time. Are the chiefs of staff happy with their the whole defence process? Well, they're not, actually, because this so-called reform of the armed forces is not going well. 
It's not going anywhere, actually. And the, the, the problem with the, uh, with the Russian army is that there is still a debate. So do we have a professional army or do we stick with the conscripts? The conscripts don't really fight very well, as it, uh, as it has been found. And, and, of course, the Georgian invasion was a disaster. I mean, it all, it's all very nice for public relations spin doctors saying, oh, that's a victory. It was appalling. I mean, from the military point of view, old equipment, no communication working properly, no air cover, no, uh, they shot at each other, friendly fire all over the place. They couldn't even stop properly when they were told at the border. They just, just marched into Georgia and probably would have gone down <laughs> to, to Turkey. And uh, this was absolutely, this was, this was the first time that everybody realized that the reform is desperately needed. Mm. that new equipment is needed, that the army has to be trained properly. This was not an army. It was just a bunch of men, you know, just, just charging down and, and, and that's it. And um, I, I think used to go to threat lectures and I was told they were 10 foot tall and they'd be at the channel ports in four days. You mean to say they would have gone via Georgia? Well, I mean, you could have seen the footage. It was, uh, the tanks were all, ni- 1970s or what, and uh, they didn't, uh, you know, the commander was wounded on the first day of the operation. That it, was, it was absolutely ridiculous. And, uh, of course, you know, there are two ways of presenting it as a, as a victory by, by, by the media, by the Russian state-run media, and, 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 of course, the analysts were saying it was a disaster. I tell you something here, um, Rob, I mean, for you having watched this whole strategic... Uh, the global issues, defence for many, many years. Um, I always get the impression that when people go to war, um, they always go to war with the Second Eleven's equipment. I mean, I can't think of a, I can't think of even a major battle, um, except probably, um, I don't know, Trafalgar, where the commanders have got the equipment they want, and so. Isn't this just really a regurgitation of, the, uh, of old Christ and from, from the commands in chief? Well, I think when it comes to Afghanistan, this has been a huge issue. And I guess I'm not sure that you would answer the question quite the way you've put it. I, I think the issue is, look, what, are you going to suffer casualties in the kind of conflict that you're suffering in Afghanistan? To which the answer is yes. If you really were to throw everything at it, would you necessarily suffer suffer quite the level of fatalities that we have suffered if you had helicopters that you could use instead of having to go along a road that was a bit dodgy? Or borrow American helicopters. Absolutely. Or do you have the vehicles to go off-terrain when you want to, but also when you do need to be on on established roads to have really, really heavily armoured stuff. And I guess the answer to that question, whether you're a commander in the field or just a a regular observer is, well, no, they haven't been given all of that stuff. But then your question is, well, does that happen every time? Well, more often than not. I I wanted to just raise one other issue in this whole business about defence spending and where it all fits in with politics. I I was thinking about something that uh, General Sir Robert Fry told me not so long ago about the the kind of conundrum facing Britain and and defence, and in particular the relationship with the electorate. We've all been talking around the table about how, as far as we know, the voters are much more concerned about things like health and education. But right now we we do seem to be living in a time which feels very unsettling. I mean, there may not be a Soviet Union, but we can... I think ordinary citizens can feel unsettled. They know that there's problems in the world, particularly in South Asia, but they can feel the instability in the Middle East. They feel a certain uncertainty still about Russia and China. And and yet, a point that Robert Fry brought out to me was that 
you know, you can have people that sense the sense of uncertainty, but on the other hand, when they look at the kind of messy conflicts that we've been involved in in the last 10 years, things which aren't really obvious, it's difficult to get public backing. I mean, if you ask something like the Second World War, straightforward, something like the, the threat posed by the Soviet Union in the Cold War, straightforward, but helping the Afghans to have a kind of an accountable, decent sort of government, helping the Pakistanis to deal with their problems, going into the odd African country, the odd failed state that we're worrying about. These are just not straightforward conflicts that are easy to sell to people. They don't have a nice beginning, a, a nice clean end, and something that you but can you know, watch. Rob, the problem is that, <clears throat> and I, I remember it in, uh, happening in the Soviet Union, that the role of military intelligence has not changed. And it had to change, because military intelligence is the eyes and ears of the army. And they still act as if it's the same war, you know? Yeah, they, had, they had to send in people into Afghanistan and um, Iraq with a completely different mission. This is not like fighting, you know, a huge army against you. You have to do a completely different operation. And they didn't do it. But to, they, but, they didn't change. But, but to get to the specifics of Afghanistan, I mean, we've, we've talked about one issue, really, so far, and that is we've been tiptoeing around whether anybody really thinks that, that on the ground, are we doing the right thing? You know, have we got a chance of succeeding? And there is this other issue, which is the public opinion issue in Britain. Now, the last poll that was done was by the BBC, I think, in November of last year, and it, and it suggested that 68% of British people wanted a withdrawal. Now, all of us know from living in this country, the anecdotal evidence says that doesn't mean it's a major issue. I, I think it hardly figures in, in what people think. It's a different thing to say, you know, you have a poll, you specifically you ask know, someone, if, and asked. Gonna, if asked, it's not, it's not a big issue. But, the point but, 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 but I, I just wanted to <coughs> say this, the second big issue, you know, why, why is it that, um, you know, 68% of people would ask, if asked, would say we, we, should, we should withdraw? It's partly they don't really understand, you know, what on earth are we doing? And, that? This and it's is one of the things that the government has constantly struggled with. Bob Ainsworth was trying to deal with it on Monday. It's selling it. How do you sell it? What, you know, what we, if you had to... No, my my mum is constantly asking me, why are we in Afghanistan? Yeah. No, what, I, what I meant is this. Why was it that MI6 was uh, telling uh, the government to go into Iraq. Why not the military intelligence? Well, it was, because, through the GIC. Well, yes, but, but military intelligence was not p p calling the I don't shots. Think, I don't think MI6 was very keen on us going into Afghanistan. No. Well, at I mean, what I'm saying is, why is it that, that, that military intelligence role... We, we, we don't really feel it, and the army doesn't feel it. It hasn't changed. What, that's what I'm saying. Well, you know? I can tell you a number America of people... Wanted us to go there. America yeah. wanted That's very important. Well, it, it, it was important at the time. I mean, we come back to another thing now. Will we ever go again on those conditions? Probably, yes. Um, it, it, it also interests you talking about General Rob Fry. General, Fry, um, General Rob's um, uh, Royal Marine, yeah. Special Forces, thinks in terms of quick reaction infantry, although smart enough to see a much bigger picture because he was deputy commander, wasn't he? In, in Iraq. In, 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 in Iraq. What concerns me is that people of his calibre and that very, very high calibre actually have a good grasp of what the capabilities are, what the conditions are, what is needed. And yet, what um, to some extent Nick Clegg was rather clumsily saying in the Daily Telegraph is that the politicians are not listening to what people like Rob Fry uh, are actually telling them. And Rob Fry is telling Nick Clegg and he is now waking up to hearing what, uh, I mean, now Rob Fry's gone from the services, uh, what he's actually saying. 
Uh, absolutely, but if <laughs> but if you're saying it would be a good thing that uh, that we heard more from the generals on the airwaves, that's that's just not going to happen. I mean, we we have a system where we're going to have to not wait if you for want a time. To tell where, the truth. Uh, absolutely, we're going to have to wait for the for the politicians to start talking like that. Yeah. Not impossible. Can I just uh, try something else? Uh, we were talking about budget cuts, and something that struck me this uh, this week. I mean, the, the House of Commons is starting to look at the whole thing about terrorism again, yet again. Um, and I was interested in John Yates, the Assistant Commissioner at the Metropolitan Police here in London, who is the head of counter-terrorism. He says it would be naive to think that his budget, counter-terrorism budget, will escape uh, cuts because there's a recession. And then he moves on and says, you know, all in time for the 2012 Olympics. Now, that seems to me one of the bigger problems that when Bob Ainsworth says, as he did on Tuesday, Tuesday was it? Yeah, Tuesday, uh, or whenever, yesterday, yesterday in, in, in Chatham House, um, the war in Afghanistan is about the safety of the streets of uh, Britain's cities. Um, John Yates, as Assistant Commissioner, has got a, a big say in this, and it's far from Afghanistan, Rob. Uh, absolutely. I, I've got to say that if I was a betting man or, or I knew much about how the next government of whatever stripe it is will, will plan its budgets, I, I would think one of the safer places to be if you were interested in holding on to your budget, was a, uh, holding on to your job, would be as a, an officer with an MI5, MI6 and counter-terrorism. Yeah. I, I mean, I think of all the places which are going to be fairly well protected as long as as long as it's considered that there is a, a high level of threat out there from homegrown Islamic extremists, I can't see their budgets really taking Some a huge hit. politicians are old enough to still remember the Munich Olympics and what happened when uh, Black September, on behalf of Yasser Arafat, grabbed a number of um, Israeli athletes in, in the ensuing explosion. No, that's a huge, he a huge headache, huge headache. Um, I want to talk about... Uh, President Obama, not at the G8 summit, which is... Um, is he still at it? Are we Thursday? Yeah, oh, yes. he's, he, he's still at it, isn't he? Trying to get a 2% reduction in something. Um, temperature. Temperature. Cool. Crikey. I don't see why... I mean, what's wrong with global warming? I mean, really, you'll see my tomatoes. Um, I was interested in him uh, earlier this week when he was meeting President Medvedev and uh, Prime Minister Putin in Moscow. And... Uh, I've been wondering what um, President Obama's uh, electorate thinks, what Americans think about Russia. I mean, not long ago, they were considered public enemy number one. Almost that war with the then Soviet Union was inevitable. On the line from the University of Southern Utah, where he is Professor of International Politics, Michael Stathis. Michael, is there any anecdotal or, say, polling evidence of what Americans feel about Russia now? I'm afraid that uh, the major mentions of Russia this week have been on the comedy circuit, where the late-night show, uh, show hosts um, have only made reference to Russia as it regards uh, its location to Sarah Palin's house, that she can see it from her front porch. Um, it's, it's kind of a sad state of affairs when, when you think about it, that uh, uh, there are so many things that uh, really have taken uh, precedence uh, uh, on the news uh, level this week, uh, particularly, uh, of course, the uh, Michael Jackson funeral, uh, Sarah Palin, uh, debate over health care, uh, the economy in, in, in general. Um, 
the uh, the visit to Moscow and um, uh, uh, Obama's meetings uh, with the president and the prime minister, I guess we can call it the Dmitry and Vladimir show, um, has garnered very little news. And um, yeah, even when uh, it has gotten some serious uh, discussion, uh, and here uh, we like to look at uh, national public uh, uh, radio, NPR, the facts have been wrong, um, both uh, in terms of what's doing now and uh, going back to 1991 and 19, uh, ni- 1992. It, it, it's really shocking. Right. I mean, yet America since, I suppose, the 1940s, just um, after the uh, Second World War, uh, developed this idea of containment. They had to contain communism, didn't they? Um, and so, therefore, the whole, if you like, the theatre of uh, the Cold War was was set there, and Americans really understood it. I mean, we had McCarthyism, we had everything that followed from it. Well, the whole focus of uh, American foreign policy from uh, 1945 until 1991 uh, had to do with uh, Cold War politics and essentially the uh, uh, misinterpretation of George F. Kennan's notion of containment. Um, And it was a very simple way to characterize uh, foreign policy. Uh, When the Cold War ended and the Soviet Union, uh, the uh, Ronald Reagan's evil empire literally disappeared overnight, what does one do now? Uh, and um, uh, qu- quite frankly, American foreign policy in many ways has been struggling with, uh, th- with that question uh, since 1991. Uh, you know, what, what is the new focus? Um, what, what are we really concerned with? 9-11 provide a partial uh, a- answer, but um, uh, uh, quite frankly, American foreign policy in general is still grasping at straws trying to figure out some- something new. And... Um, the Russian Federation uh, is, is is kind of a question mark. What you know? What do we do with them? How do we look at them? Uh, what is uh, their role and uh, our role with them uh, in uh, in the near future? And uh, many Americans, I think, were hoping uh, to see that simplified uh, with uh, uh, with uh, this trip to uh, Moscow and um, uh, oh, maybe something uh, on uh, the uh, the score of uh, Obama upstaging uh, the uh, the president and the Prime Minister, which I don't think really happened this time. If you go back to October 1986 and the meeting in Reykjavik between uh, President uh, Gorbachev and uh, and Ronald Reagan, this sort of zero option, do you remember, that was floated then. The whole thing was about getting rid of nuclear weapons. Here it is up again getting rid of nuclear weapons or cutting them down to 1,600 warheads, whether deployable or whatever. Um, At that time, it caused tremendous international interest. Now, nobody seems to care what the heck we've got. Is that because terrorism, Islam, has become the new USSR? Well, I think even back in the late 80s, the uh, nuclear question had shifted uh, from one involving the threat of uh, 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 an all-out nuclear war uh, to the problem of uh, uh, questions of proliferation. And uh, I think that we've, uh, we've come back to that. We are, I think, today far more concerned, uh, uh, both here and uh, I think worldwide, uh, with the possibility of uh, Iran acquiring uh, nuclear capability uh, or uh, a terrorist organization um, uh, getting a hold of a, uh, a, a small uh, nuclear device. Um, the, the prospect of a major uh, uh, nuclear war 
uh, say, a confrontation between Washington and Moscow, it's just unthinkable. Uh, At least it's not uh, uh, practical uh, in this day. uh, Whereas back in the 80s, we we were still living on the edge. And uh, so uh, the threat is gone, and uh, uh, well, so is the headline uh, in, in terms of that. Michael Stasis, thank you very much indeed. Hashir, Hashir tomorrow. Yeah. Um, Alexander's old friend Boris Yeltsin used to attend American independence parties at the U.S. Embassy in Moscow in person. But last Saturday, I hear, there was not a single member of the Kremlin leadership at the party, even though anybody else who was anybody in Moscow was there. Apparently, the new leadership, I wonder what Alexander thinks about this, the new leadership is quite unhappy to see the back of George W. Until now, they pretended it was they were against George W., but now they have an American president who is popular in the world, and yet they are deeply anti-American and distrustful. Alexander? Well, first of all, I was amazed to read the press in Russia commenting on Obama's visit. And it downplayed this visit to such an extent that I was absolutely amazed. Secondly, the question that was asked is, why the hell did he come? What to, to do what? Because there was no agreement signed. This is a memorandum memorandum which will be implemented for seven years. It might collapse and so on. as regards that famous agreement of flying lethal, lethal weapons or something it's called, over t- Russian uh, territory, it's already been done. It's not a new thing. It's been done by private contractors. I know some of them. So it was just a- a- increased. The point was this, which people don't know about. Obama came to ask for money. That was the main reason. And that's why... What's he want money for? And in the Kremlin, he said, when asked, so whom do you th- who do you think runs Russia? And everybody was waiting for his answer. He said, wonderful tandem, those two. And that's when everybody started to laugh. Mm. Because this was like from the script written by the Kremlin press office. You liked the tandem. Please say the tandem that. Being... Tandem being Medvedev and Putin. Mm. And basically what happened was this. It was all sort of uh, games and fun in the first day with Medvedev. But then came the hard talking with Putin. So what the Americans want is this. They want investment directly. They want IOUs to be bought by Russian government and so on. It didn't work out, of course, because um, Putin just said, we'll think about it. But that was the main reason. Obama didn't really want to go to Russia. You could see by his body language, he was not comfortable there. There was no crowds cheering him. There was no one. He was whisked into the hotel, whisked out of it. Nobody at all. Two people arrested from Nigeria for some reason, and uh, trying to get in with false pa- with false um, passes and so on. But basically, he didn't feel welcome there and at home. I, I, I felt I, that. I was, I was on a, I was on a BBC radio program with a with a Russian commentator, who, who said, you know, part of the part of the problem with this visit is just, uh, you know, Russians don't like black people very much. Oh boy, come on, no, 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 no I don't agree with that at all. I mean, absolutely. Uh, as regards Obama's popularity generally, is that uh, he was um, when he was elected, there was quite an expectation. But then, of course, there was disappointment because Obama didn't really start to do things quickly. And then there was disappointment that Obama took over a lot of policies of Bush. You say that Bush was <laughs> liked by the Russians. No, no, he wasn't liked by them. But Obama seems to be doing exactly the same thing. You know, well, I, think one really thing, I think one thing you can definitely say from this visit and from some of the other ones that he had to, mid- to the Middle East is that he's had a, he's had a rapid learning curve. Hmm. And I think he's been learning that... 
that just because George <laughs> Bush isn't president any, anymore, the world is still a difficult place I wonder to deal if, with. Uh, I wonder if one of the things he's learning, uh, or whether he had to learn it, and that is the whole nuclear arms thing. It's a bit of a myth, uh, in as much you sign deals so you get rid of weapons that the other side's got, or that you don't it's want more, anymore. It's more about symbolic gestures yeah. rather than... Because, let's face it, 1,500 level is enough to destroy exactly. the earth 10 times exactly. and that's 3000 i mean both sides yeah. so it's all about symbolism and it's all about basically they're both countries are saying guys you know look we are cutting down our uh, arsenals please don't don't get your arsenals and I mean, the other the, thing is the december thing when the when the uh, salt one runs out i mean salt one i mean that was that isn't actually not important in the in the terms of nuclear. It's not arms important control. anymore. Yes, and it was yeah, assigned, a, by the way, ages ago. Everybody yeah, forgot about it already. It's a, already a done deal. Yeah, yeah. I want to talk about something else uh, about leaders. Uh, probably quite different. I, I imagine you all know that uh, the Pope, it's Benedict the Sixteenth has called for reform of the United Nations. I mean, I brought this up because Rob is a former United Nations correspondent. Mm -hmm. um, and um, he wants to give them real teeth and need to tackle economic and social injustice. And this come, has come in an encyclical. That's a letter written by the Pope. Um, it's called uh, Caritas in Veritate, Charity and Truth. Now, why now? Um, I mean, the significance of an insectical, um, um, Rob, is it's the Pope saying it. It's almost teaching, isn't it? Absolutely. I I've got to say, I was very surprised after about a year at the UN to find that the Holy See actually had a, an observer status there. And I remember seeing a, a holy man once. I'm trying to remember whether I saw him, whether he was in the delegates' lounge having a whiskey like the rest of us. But, but I, I can't say, as the, uh, the Holy See's presence at the UN left a huge impression on me. I mean, he didn't throw great cocktail parties. And, Is that uh, why it didn't leave an impression on you? That's definitely a very big reason why it didn't leave an impression with me. I mean, I, I, I don't know. Look, what I would say is that, that some of the biggest members of the Security Council, particularly the United States, are always trying to boss the, US or, or the UN around and get it to reform and do something. They haven't had much success. Lots of other people that have asked for reform haven't had much yeah. success. Do you think the Pope's going to well, get Well, I don't chance? know, but I, I have to very quickly think. I can't remember how many years ago it was when you and I sort of, sort of agreed that the UN being the sum of its membership, uh, that the Pope isn't going to get in there. But it does raise this whole thing. I mean, whether we... I wonder whether priests have more influence over public opinion Before than politicians. Christopher, We've only got two minutes, so we have uh, to go on very quickly. I wonder why the Pope was saying that. He must know that as long as there are great powers, they will not give up their, their vetoes to make themselves subject to majority rule. Well, he wasn't talking about vetoes. Uh, Caritas in Veritas. Uh, in Veritas but giving keys to the that. UN means enabling the majority to overrule the powerful ones. Let's talk about the, I mean, the idea that the uh, that priests, I mean, famous, famous priests have had more influence. I mean, I'm thinking of... Uh, uh, Archbishop Tutu, um, Ayatollah uh, Khomeini, um, Maharishi Yoga, even. They've all had lasting influence, haven't they? Far more than politicians who are out in five But I mean, years. the Pope is very popular. Come on, let's face it. And there's what's a billion, more than a billion Catholics who listen yeah. to every word he says. So, I don't know, maybe he, he'll do something with the UN. I think the problem with the UN is they're based in their own country. And that's the whole problem. They well, nobody be else would have them at the time. Th but they should be based somewhere well, else. And yeah, then but let's problem. get back to anybody got any people, any priests that they think, yeah, that guy was it. I mean, I, to me, Martin Luther King Jr. 
Yeah, but he was not just a priest. I no, mean, he, he wasn't, was, but that's not the point. He was a great orator, so, you know. Yes, uh, Cardinal moral, Romero. Moral. Anybody? I know, every time I think of high-profile religious figures these days, I get, a, I get a bad feeling in my stomach and a shaky feeling in my legs. Immediately they come into politics, they become unpopular. Yeah. Right, OK, talking about popularity, we've got, we got 30 seconds, Rob. Why is the Defence Secretary... Uh, or why are people muttering he's 19th out of 23 or whatever he is in the, in the pecking order of the cabinet? All I can say is it came as a great surprise to him. He didn't know until we told him at a cocktail party at the, at the Department of Defence. Uh, he asked, well, where did you get that from then? Uh, to which one journalist said, it's on the Downing Street website. Beyond that, we had no further elucidation. <laughs> no further elucidation on that, because it's this week uh, uh, finished for us. Many thanks to Rob Watson, Alexander Nekrasov, and to Hashir Tamori. And don't forget, you can listen online and podcast SITREP anytime at bfbs.com forward slash SITREP. I'm Christopher Lee. Mary's in the hut. We'll be back next week, same time, same place. <laughs>